This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archives to read and discuss. Then, they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. Today, my guest is the writer Elisa Gonzalez, who was recently a Fulbright Scholar in Poland, and whose work has received support from the Norman Mailer Foundation and the Breadloaf Writers Conference. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The poem you picked from the archive is Gathering Apricots by Czesław Miłosz. Can you tell us a bit about why this particular poem caught your attention? I have as you say, been a Fulbright scholar in Poland, and so Polish poetry is a particular love and obsession of mine. But this particular Miłosz poem really attracted me because um, of the kind of revision that happens in the middle, because it comments on the poem that he writes um, within the context of the poem. Let's listen to it. Uh, Here's Elisa Gonzalez reading Gathering Apricots by Czesław Miłosz, translated from the Polish by the author and Robert Haas. Gathering Apricots In the sun, while there, below, over the bay, only clouds of white mist wander, fleeting, and the range of hills is grayish on the blue. Apricots, the whole tree full of them, in the dark leaves, glimmer yellow and red, bringing to mind the garden of the Hesperides and apples of paradise. I reach for a fruit and suddenly feel the presence and put aside the basket and say, it's a pity that you died and cannot see these apricots while I celebrate this undeserved life. Commentary. Alas, I did not say what I should have. I submitted fog and chaos to a distillation. That other kingdom of being or non-being is always with me and makes itself heard with thousands of calls, screams, complaints, And she, the one to whom I turned, is perhaps but a leader of a chorus. What happened only once does not stay in words. Countries disappeared and towns and circumstances. Nobody will be able to see her face. And form itself, as always, is a betrayal. That was Gathering Apricots by Czesław Miłosz, translated from the Polish by the author and Robert Haas, and originally published in the October 29, 1990 issue of the magazine. So uh, this poem struck me, of course, uh, immediately from what you described before we heard it, which is it has this commentary in the middle. Uh, in fact, it's half commentary. It's kind of uh, doubles the the poem, but it also shadows it. And I'm really interested in the shadow being cast by this beginning, which I would say is kind of almost um, pastoral and, and lovely. And then he says, alas, I did not say what I should have. I submitted fog and chaos to a distillation. Uh, how do you think this works? Um 
So this book, the book that this is from, is a late book from Miłosz, um, and it's called Provinces. And he starts to reflect a lot in this book on the other province, as he calls it, or a new province of old age. Um, and so his return to memory, his return to youth, this memory of this woman that he at one point knew um, is a melancholy memory for him, I think, um, very clearly. Um, but the turn, as you say, that that shadows it is one that I think puts the it puts memory kind of even more in the flow of time, as I, as he says somewhere else about what poetry can do, um, because he reflects in the moment not just on the memory, but on his own gathering of it, his gathering of it like the apricots. In his Nobel lecture, he talks about how um, a poet has a kind of double vision, that mm-hmm. there's they make a map both distant and concrete. And I think he always had this um, intense sense of not being able to say what he wanted to say. Mm. And part of that was because he t- also talks about um, how the the poet, by which he means himself, <laughs> but he says the poet, um, always wanted to just contemplate being and I beauty. See. But he had, because of, he was caught up in the war and the Holocaust and post-war Poland and went yeah. into exile, he had to deal with the loss of friends, the enormous tragedy of the Holocaust, um, and his survivor's guilt, um, but also his sense that there was so much that he could not ever capture. And that's, I think, the fog and chaos. Um, mm. And he, he also talks somewhere else about form as, I think he got this idea from Thomas Mann, but about form as inhuman in some way, as the poet's impulse is an inhuman one, that it's in competition with human solidarity, as he says. Um, And I see that suspicion so much here, like Mm -hmm. quite, I mean, he comments on it so obviously. And I think that's part of what I find really interesting as, I mean, I think a lot of poets Perhaps you distrust the lyric quite a lot despite working in it. (laughs) I understand what you mean. I mean, I think that I was going to ask you about that because this end and form itself, as always, is a betrayal. And, of course, that's in translation. But I think what I love about Haas's translations especially are that they're so interesting and invested and, of course, they're collaborative. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder about that suspicion, as you call it. But also, is it memory or poetry that he's distrusting? Because he's also saying, I submitted fog and chaos, which is, I think, not just the world, but also one's memory does a process of distillation. And and I think you even see that in the beginning, in the sun, while they're below, over the bay, which is, you know, on one hand, really getting more and more specific, and another hand, recasting and, and refiguring out, or maybe even making up a little bit where this this magic moment happened. Mm-hmm. And the mirroring of the, the fog and clouds, I think, is a, a really interesting one. I, I agree with you that I think he's submitting memory to the same distrust. Um, and also part of that, I think, um, which you can kind of see the construction of the memory there is the fact that the verb takes so long to arrive in that first mm. sentence, which takes so six lines um, to mm-hmm. finish. Um, but there's so much kind of preamble there as he builds the memory. And yes, it's not a straightforward, wholly trustworthy description, I think, even before you get to the part where he is explicitly criticizing what he did. Um, yeah. And the last line is the one that has 
rung in my head. Um, and I also thought uh, when I first read this of um, Louise Glick's celestial music, a love mm-hmm. of form is a love of endings. Right. I think. Um, and the idea that to cast something there is um, to hold it still, perhaps. Yeah, when, to be too neat, perhaps. Yeah. But he calls it a betrayal, which is more than just like, it's a little too tidy. It's also, he's saying that the poet who, uh, as you say, is, is him, is always through the process of making uh, and creating and crafting. And this poem feels very crafted. It's not in a strict form in English, at least, but it has a kind of solid sonnet-like, you know, uh, quality, a sort of thesis, antithesis almost. Um, But it also feels like there are two different forms. One is oddly more fluid and thus kind of less trustworthy in the beginning. And the other one is much more blunt, uh, at least to my ear. Mm -hmm. Um, Countries disappeared in towns and circumstances. I mean, you know, that's, that's just saying a lot of the history that you uh, outlined so well in just, you know, a few lines, in a few words, I should say. Mm-hmm. Nobody will be able to see her face. Uh, you know, and someone else, I think, would end that there. Um, and instead, he takes that extra beat, that extra line. The first stanza's 10 and the second one's 11. And so here he is with this extra moment to indict the very thing that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that is very true. And I was just thinking about the syntax of the first um, stanza in relation to the second, because we talked about the delayed verb in the in the first part, and then the second part is full of these fairly short, choppy sentences. And those last three lines in particular, countries disappeared in towns and circumstances. Nobody will be able to see her face and form itself, as always, is a betrayal. Um, I mean, Miłosz has a lot of kind of ironic self-absorption, the inability to stay with the memory and the need to bring it back to the reflection on what poetry can do. Um, it is interesting to, to conceive of it as as a neat ending. I mean, to, like, there are multiple no, laments happening. No, I think it's, like, not here. neat. I think it's off uh, kilter. I mean, it's odd, quite literally. You know, it's 11 lines. I don't know. It, it, it does something to me knowing that it, it's a little bit lopsided but doesn't look that at first glance. Um, yeah, that's a really good point, which I had not before noticed. Um, and the end becomes a series of propositions, mm-hmm. which are increasingly complicated, I think. Like, that's right. And the idea of betrayal obviously invites the question of to whom. I mean, mm-hmm. is it to the subject of the poem? Who? Um, I was reading this essay by Michał Szymański, who's an archivist in Poland, um, about this poem. And he says uh, Miłosz is thinking of a real woman. And he returned to those glimpses of her throughout his life in various forms. But it doesn't have to be a specific person. Sure. It's, um, but he certainly is not conjuring that woman for us in any specificity. We would never be able to see her face based on this poem. Um, but oh, but I think that's almost the point. You know, like, what happened only once does not stay in words. That's true, but I've never thought of it that way, which I think is a sign of it being a good poem. It it doesn't keep there, but poetry is this kind of effort to keep something that may be fleeting or or capture a moment. That's the way that I think the lyric uh, works well and that I have faith in the lyric because it's aware of its own kind of fleetingness. Um, But I, I see your point, too, that... You know, do we distrust the ways that it seems like it's fixed or seems like it's immortal in um, scare quotes, you know? <laughs> um, how does that work here? Because he's really writing about time, but he starts off with the apples of paradise, you know, and, and gives us this kind of big 
huge mythic moment that he then takes apart. Yeah, and then just end by conjuring the apples of paradise. He's reminding us of, and they're reaching for fruit. There's the fall of man and the post-lapsarian world that we suddenly walk into, the undeserved life that maybe we all have. Um, yeah, I mean, I I also don't think, um, I think Miłosz's distrust of the lyric corresponds with a total faith in it at the same time. I mean, yeah. he's, a, he's a troubled religious soul his whole life, like sure. a Catholic who only late in his life could like really come to even say that he believed in God. Right. Um, and that tension, I think, is fully felt here, which is something that I really like because certainly the lyric focused on the moment tries to capture it and and we know that it comes from a poet's singular mind that that does make it untrustworthy but also the perhaps the most trustworthy object that one could make um i mean in the sense that you can only represent your own perspective here um so i mean the choice that he he makes that the poet makes perhaps every time we write is not to retreat into silence just because to say anything completely true is impossible. Right. Um, and what happened only once does not stay in words is the line that I find the most enigmatic. It is, <laughs> it, I mean, and form itself as always is a betrayal is opens up a lot of questions for me. But what yeah. happened only once does not stay in words is like a series of simple words that did not immediately make sense to me as um, as an idea, really. Well, it's a, it's a leap, um, and it's referring to a thing that it doesn't quite say, um, but I also think it encompasses it in such a way that it feels specific. You know, it's like when someone's talking about something and you realize they're describing themselves <laughs> in an abstract way. It's like, don't you hate it when this thing happens and you're like, that's a story that happened to you, right? Like, <laughs> um, there's a way in which... Uh, that has that kind of quality to me. I had a teacher once talk about the heckler in a poem and someone like John Berryman, you know, with Mr. Bones or we can think of any number of other poets who have this kind of commentary or, or you know, sidekick who interrupts the poem or aren't afraid to take you out of the poem in order to bring you back. And I, I think that's what's amazing about that commentary just as a, a function. Um, I love that uh, word, the heckler, for this aspect of the poem, although it sounds like Berryman is also more playful than, than here. What it made me think of is also of like a religious commentary yes. on um, going back. And it's kind of, I just thought of this as, you know, the betrayal is, I think the word heckler also invokes this to some extent. You could find this annoying. You're like, I've just read this first stanza, this very beautiful thing, and then you're telling me mm -hmm. it doesn't work at all. So sure. why did I why did I go through that? Right, right. The trauma of a ten line poem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, obviously it is not that, but there is that sense when when poets criticize themselves within sure. the text. Why um, not why not make it plain? But the beginning isn't plain to me, and that's one of the things it's so lush, you know, and it does feel like a, um, he's also commenting on, if not romanticism, then some notion of, you know, that you died and cannot see. The, <laughs> you know, there's a kind of, you know, really uh, 19th century almost yearning that is being memorialized. And then he talks about this distillation. But I think one of the modern uh, ways poetry works is it represents the messiness, you know, and it keeps that alive or, or at our forefront of our minds or um, even on the page there. 
Um, yes, that is a really good observation about the the contrast and the way of updating it, I guess, which we, you know, I could certainly learn from. I mean, I also do love the way that it um, he traces the progress of a thought in the first mm. part where it, it does follow the sort of um, the way that he comes to this thing. And there is that, I suppose, echo of the Proustian involuntary memory there that's summoned by an object. Um the beginning is so beautiful, and it was interesting to me. Milos is always saying in like interviews and stuff that he hates nature. He just <laughs> goes on and on about this. Like he lived in Cal- Northern California for so long, sure. and he was like, "It's very beautiful, but it's just not me." Like I don't American yeah. poets; they love nature, and um, but he constantly writing about the natural world, and I right. I think some of it is perhaps that. Um, he talks about the world of people being interesting to him. And I do wonder if there's something about like bringing nature into contact with people, which is interesting. But I also just don't really believe him that he doesn't like (laughs) Well, I mean, never believe what the poet says about their work. I mean, it's a little like Eliot saying, you know, all poems should be, you know, filled with impersonality. They're an escape from personality. And then, of course, you know, The Wasteland's a very personal poem about a breakdown he had. And, you know, it's often the case that the poet protest too much. <laughs> they struggle against the thing, which is actually true. Yeah. Um, and that in itself is another interesting layer to bring. I mean, obviously, like you don't have to know that to appreciate this poem no, or absolutely. the wasteland. One last question about this poem, which is that you were saying that you read it in Polish. How does it differ for you? I mean, is it still like commentary or does it have a different feel or... Um, I don't. I am not fluent uh, in Polish enough to read poetry with any kind of... Um, <laughs> without extreme difficulty. Um, but it is commentary, which is part of the reason I went to look for it, because I was curious about the translation. I mean, Miłosz spoke English well, and Haas is obviously a wonderful, wonderful translator. Um, so I didn't distrust the translation, but I was just curious yeah, yeah, for myself. Yeah, the choices. Yeah, um, I, I did I did want to know. And I mean, and I find um, the, the poet who I was studying most when I was in Poland was Zbigniew Herbert, mm. um, and his, uh, you know, unlike uh, Miłosz, he uses very little punctuation, if any, and his syntax uh, is often more obviously complicated, at least. Um, or, And I was curious because I had felt like when thinking about Herbert's poetry, um, Polish, because of the fact that it is a case-based language and the nouns change to reflect the grammatical function that they have in the sentence, um, the syntax is so much more flexible because it doesn't have to be subject-verb-object in some form. Um, and I, I was wondering if, like, Miłosz was was playing with um, with anything like that. It wasn't as, I mean, the beginning was complicated, but the, the yeah. end was not. Um, well, but I, I think I, that is so illuminating what you just said about it. I'm curious about that how that translates in the poem, because to me, what you're describing is what he's done, um, both Haas and uh, Miłosz in their translation, which starts out fluid, as I said, and then is kind of punchy at the end. So there's this kind of evocation, of, at least, of a kind of grammar or syntax of change. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, you know, I could not uh, pretend to truly judge the translation, but it did seem to me to really reflect the poem. Although the only thing is that the last line in Polish, um, which I unfortunately cannot quote from memory, does have internal rhyme in it. That mm. is definitely like it's so much choppier and harsher in, in English. Um, and I just thought that I thought that was interesting. But Polish is a more flowing language anyway. Like people are always like it's like sh- 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 over and over again. Um, so, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but it is interesting. Beautiful. Now, in the November 4th, 2019 issue of the magazine, the New Yorker published your poem, Failed Essay on Privilege, which we'll hear you read momentarily. Is there anything you'd like to say about the poem beforehand? Anything our listeners might need or want to know? I think it's fairly self-explanatory, so um, I will just go ahead and read the poem. All right. Here's Elisa Gonzalez reading her poem, Failed Essay on Privilege. Failed Essay on Privilege I came from something popularly known as nothing, and in the coming, I got a lot. My parents didn't speak money, didn't speak college. Still, I went to Yale. For a while, I tried to condemn. I wrote, let me introduce you to evil. Still, I was a guest there. I made myself at home. And I know a fine shoe when I see one, and I know to be sincerely sorry for those people's problems. I know to want nothing more than it would be so nice to have, and I confess I'll never hate what I've been given as much as I wish I could. Still, I thought I of all people understood Aristotle, what is and isn't the good life, because, I wrote, privilege is an aggressive form of amnesia. I left a house with no heat. I left the habit of hunger. I left a room I shared with seven brothers and sisters I also left. Even the good is regrettable, or at least sometimes should be regretted. Yet to hate myself is not to absolve her. I paid so much for wisdom. And look at all of this. Look at all I have. That was Failed Essay on Privilege by Elisa Gonzalez. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) I love hearing that poem and hearing you read it. I was waiting to hear how you were going to read the ending with a dash. It ends with a dash. Obviously, that's a sort of continuity, uh, sort of like, is there more after the dash? Um, And I love that kind of question. I also thought when you were reading it, um, that there is a kind of commentary in this poem. If not, it's a poem that's commenting on uh, a way of being. And even previous writing, I wrote, privilege is an aggressive form of amnesia. 
Were you thinking about that, about that sort of yeah. self-conscious quality? Yeah, I, um, yes. And that was another reason I was attracted to the Mulish poem, because I thought, ah, I understand this impulse. I was struggling to write poems. I wrote this while I was in Poland. And I was decided to give myself, like, prompts. It was like, write a poem as if it is an essay um, mm-hmm. on a subject, but don't necessarily write an essayistic poem. Sure. Um, and I tried, I tried to write about this so many times because um, this is fairly accurately, no, it is accurately autobiographical. I did go to Yale. I did grow up in poverty and I do have seven brothers and sisters. Um, so the facts are basically there. But I had always struggled to write about it because I have, my life has moved, right? And it always felt hypocritical um, to either try to evoke um, to evoke the past as if I were innocent of any of the things that I disliked when I got to the space of immense privilege. Sure, yeah. Um, and then I was trying to, I mean, the failed reflects a sense that it always would have to end in a dash because mm-hmm. I can never actually finish the thought or something. Mm-hmm. And um, and also my, uh, my sense of um, trouble that I have about writing about my family because it does feel like taking other people's lives and then holding them up to say, like, look at this, you know, see mm. how it relates to me. So they become very small within the context of the poem mm-hmm. um, and fairly undefined relative to some of the other things, the thinking, I think, about them. Um, but, yeah, it was very much a, a, a reckoning of trying to think um, and trying to write something that was ethical <laughs> as well as as well as honest i suppose well those are two good concerns i think uh i love so many lines in the poem like i left a house with no heat period i left the habit of hunger period i left a room break i mean that's really i think the heart one of the hearts because i think it has many shifting tones which i also appreciate um but it has that bluntness we were talking about with uh Miwosh, um, but it also has a kind of roominess at the, at the end. I left a room. Um, you know, my parents were the first uh, in their families to go to college, and they went all the way. I mean, my dad ended up going to med school. My mom got a PhD in chemistry, you know, um, and they grew up in the segregated South where none of these things were not only expected, they were actively trying to be prevented. And so, you know, I feel in this poem that kind of it's not just guilt. It's kind of a doubt or a questioning. Uh, it's it's survivor's guilt to, in some way, uh, like you were talking about with Milos. But I also am interested in this line, even the good is regrettable, or at least sometimes break, should be regretted, break. Yet to hate myself is not to absolve her. And that her is really great. Um, does her need ab- absolving? <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. I, I, that is a, that is a, a complicated sentence that has took me a lot of wrestling with. I mean, I think the idea of the good is, is regrettable is, um, does emerge from the poem in a more organic way in the sense that it, you know, what can be regretted is the distance that has now emerged between mm. the past and the, the present self. 
And um, and I often would end up, when trying to write about this in different forms, um, I guess because the sense of doubled existence has been such a feature of my life, um, with a kind of self-indictment or self-hatred, like you are the betrayer. Mm. Um, but that felt um, too lazy. Yeah. Um, that there's no, like, okay, fine. Like, you you think you did a bad thing by doing a good thing. Like, you feel guilty about <laughs> right. some aspect of your life. Like, lots of people do. There's sure. nothing There's nothing there. And, 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 you know, nothing to sneeze at, this achievement that is being wrestled over. It's funny. I got, I, I've gotten a fair number of um, emails from people about this poem, which oh, was, okay. it was interesting to me, a um, variety of ones. One from a woman who's in the first co-ed class at Yale, actually. And, but I got um, a packet of essays from a high school class. Nice. And um, I looked at some of them and uh, a lot of them called the speaker pretentious and unlikable. Oh, wow. Um, but I thought that there there is something there about the kind of ironic distance that is right. perhaps not coming through, but that does also <laughs> take um, that does also take effect in that line. Yet to hate myself is not to absolve her, which is to push the push the person, the subject of the poem, who's also the writer away yeah. um, enough to like try to grapple with her. Yeah, I mean, I take the end as, as somewhat ironic. I mean, it ha- must be. Um, look at all I have. You know, if you say it many more times, you start to doubt it, right? I paid so much for wisdom, and look at all of this. Look at all I have. And what the speaker has is a dash, really, or what comes after. Um, yes, yes. There's a, there's a, and even the essay has failed because the poem has, has indicated that this is the way that it must be in this moment. And I'm also interested in a in a word that I think is one of these great words that I know I uh, turn to sometimes. It's still. And you say, still, dash, I went to Yale. Or still, comma, I was a guest there. I made myself at home. And these two things, of course, are traditionally thought of as opposites, a guest and home. Um, there's a kind of switch even in that line. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was very interested. I mean... The still, I was, I guess, I did kind of envision the poem as kind of a zigzaggy shape mm-hmm. that it, like, can't remain stable for too long, um, mm-hmm. which is also partly something that um, Louise Gluck was a teacher of mine, and she's always so focused on surprise, like, and when mm-hmm. the poem becomes plodding, as she says all these things. So I just, I've, I constantly felt myself falling into something which was just, you know, tendentious or plodding. So I was like, no, you have to, you have to go somewhere else. And you, and the word still was a kind of anchor, which was allowing me to provide some kind of doubt and contrast mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, sure. And that I was a guest there. I made myself at home. I was thinking about how people do often say, make yourself at home when you're a guest. Sure. And like, of course you can't do that. <laughs> like, it's so uncomfortable to be a guest. But um, but to imagine like walking into a space that doesn't belong to you and then to some right. extent like occupying it was something that I wanted to play with. I think also to me it calls them to mind why can you not belong there you know that's i think lurking behind the poem it's like you must uh feel this way when you know not everyone feels that way going to college they might think yeah this i deserve this you know or this is all great which perhaps is privilege but it's also uh, a shame that the speaker can't i don't know feel at home sometimes at least sometimes i yearn that Mm. yearn to hear um the humor of still i thought uh, 
I of all people understood Aristotle, what is and isn't the good life, which you italicize. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there is, I guess, that question, which is like, do you have to be born in the house to be at home there? Um, but it's not just about privilege; it is also about the particular person and the interaction mm-hmm. with the space. Like the, the experience is not one size fits all there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do like. I personally like that Aristotle line because um, yeah. I. Also, I see like a childish arrogance there, which is like you, you also arrive as an outsider and you're like, you don't understand this world because you're too inside it. And I get it. Like, you don't know. Um, And one line um, that I I think is, is also funny is like, I don't actually think privilege is an aggressive form of amnesia there sure. is also irony i mean i don't know what it is like i couldn't possibly define it <laughs> but, but again isn't, that, isn't that like an old self like like it's yeah like first year of yeah college. <laughs> that's what i took those as yes of. that's exactly right but sure. it is um but it does have again that that the error i think of like i understand this now and i think where the poem ends up being is like i don't understand a lot right. of things well uh, you know I, I again keep thinking about that sort of turning that happens where you say in the first line, I came from something popularly known as nothing. And he, you know, even in that, you have this kind of doubling as you were talking about that I love. I wondered a broader question or two. One is that I wonder how people write about autobiography um, and how the, you think about autobiography in a poem. And, you know, I think I struggled early on writing about things that were me but weren't me. I mean, often it was about my family, so it felt like I was like translating these ghosts and getting them down and trying to see them in poetry, which I hadn't seen before. I like that uh, phrase, translating ghosts. I think that feels quite accurate. Um, yes, I, I mean, I continued to struggle with uh, autobiographical writing, despite the fact that I think about myself all the time, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, as many poets perhaps do. Um, but I... Um, I didn't. I started writing poetry when I got to college, and um, my first poetry workshop um, was a tremendous like explosion for me because there were all these things that I had never said or perhaps mm. imagined saying before, and suddenly it was all my um, my family, my feelings about things that I had never articulated to myself. But I also, um, I think, as I grew older, just became more suspicious of the truth of those impressions or felt that I was perhaps too um, too close to things to be able to mm. see it. So maybe I was straining for the for the distance that Miłosz talks about. Um, but I, I mean, like we have <laughs> in poetry, like immense and limited material, I guess. So I do feel that autobiography is I mean, I'm trying to return to it now to to figure out, like, what are the ways that one can approach this to kind of properly translate life mm-hmm. or, or ghosts into something on the page. Um, and, yeah, so maybe this is the kind of uh, clearing of something, like a fear or, or a preemptive admission of failure that one can then go on to, to work from. Uh, Miłosz says, um, perhaps in his Nobel lecture again, like perhaps every memory is a memory of a wound. And I do think that, um, 
I like the perhaps because it's not so definitive. <laughs> right. But I he gets, he gets away with it. With, yeah, uh, with simple um, perhaps. This, this, the perhaps is really uh, such a good word. Um, but I I do think of that, which is like um, not so much that you know every memory is a trauma, but that to go back into memory is very is difficult. Yeah. Um, well, and I wondered uh, also just if the distance of being in Poland helped you write about these kind of domestic in the largest sense questions, these questions of home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. I mean, there is something like as soon as I got to Poland, um, which was in 2016, the U.S. started to feel immensely far away, like mm. everything felt far away. Um, and there there was a sense in which I was suddenly in a world that no one I knew knew anything about. Um, And there was a tremendous amount of, I felt, translating of myself into a new context that was Mm -hmm. happening, a new language, which is like impossible because you can (laughs) never say anything for so long. Um, (laughs) It's so frustrating. Um, But yes, going back to memories, I thought I would write, I mean, I did journal. I thought I would write a lot more about Poland when I was in Poland, and I didn't. That's that's Uh, really hard. Yeah, there was no distance there. So um, that does seem essential to it. And also, you may just become obsessed with the things that you don't have at that moment. The absence produces some sort of space for whatever your poetic imagination happens to consist of. Um, Yeah, I think it's hard to write about what's right in front of you. Um, I I think it comes up, too, now about the times we're in where people are trying to write about it, but it's hard to know. And sometimes people who are writing about it, who don't think they're writing about it, are writing about it the most, you know. Um, And uh, the switch into being conscious of that is, I think, really important and, and part of a poet's job, especially now, I think, to think about how can I write something that lasts but also may be relevant, you know? And I, I feel this is very true with uh, both the poems we've looked at and especially yours, thinking about wrestling with these kinds of questions of regret and wisdom and, and having and belonging and owning. Uh, these are the things that I think, you know, flit through the paper but aren't said so (laughs) aren't said so clearly or so powerfully yeah um it's it is very hard and as you say there's been a lot of discussion about how to write about what's happening and i think to some extent um although i'm on social media it does make it harder because there's a constant quick turn translation of everything into to meaning to naming it to interpreting it um whereas as a poet i just feel that i need a little more time um, <laughs> maybe a, like 6 years yeah, or like you know something that uh, and a long um, residency but I guess there's the possibility of approaching things at an angle, which I think is a mm-hmm. poet's like tremendous power, um, because Milos does write directly about historical events. Um, I mean, some of his most famous poems, like Campo de Fiori and A Poor Christian Looks at the Ghetto. I mean, dedication there, they address this. And in this poem, you know, countries disappeared and towns and circumstances. Circumstances is the word I love there. Um, but so he's not like not addressing it, but he also doesn't. Um, he's never like just describing it or saying that it's bad you know like that's not the that's not what he's choosing to do and I guess like what I would aspire to is to find the the sideways (laughs) way into it um or tell the truth but tell it slant yeah well you know someone already said it better (laughs) Um, yeah yeah. I, I heard that somewhere yeah well, I think you've done that, and I really uh, appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
failed essay on privilege by Lisa Gonzalez, as well as Cheswaf Miwosh's Gathering Apricots can be found on newyorker.com. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.